Hello, this is the movie Morlock. I'm James Kent. That's right, I'm back. Um, never really left, but uh, I wasn't sure when you'd next hear from me again. And, and I've been busy, and without a podcasting partner to uh, week in, week out, serve up the goodies, it's hard to stay motivated. Um, you know, I really enjoy uh, doing the podcast. It's a lot of fun. It's also great to talk about movies and sort of shape an episode week to week um, or talk about some of the new things that you've seen, etc. But again, without that consistent pal that I have a, you know, a great rapport with, it's hard to do it just by myself. So this episode is a solo effort. And, you know, there's been a couple of months, really, that uh, I've come to you with anything new Pretty much, uh, you know, I talked about the Oscars, um, and for those who were on a cliffhanger wondering on that last episode whether or not I really wasn't going to watch the Oscars, I was true to my word. I did not watch the Academy Awards that night. I kept in touch uh, via Twitter, and so I did not see the infamous slap as it happened, uh, though I knew about it instantly on Twitter and was able to see the unedited footage right away, probably more than uh, quickly than people who were just watching the show. So I could see the magnitude of what happened. Um, and, you know, probably if Teal and I had done an episode right after the Oscars, we would have addressed it and talked about it. Um, but, you know, it happened. It was wrong. It shouldn't have happened. It was ridiculous, and uh, I think it proved my point that uh, the Academy Awards are really starting to become irrelevant and kind of a sad affair. And, and really, the decision not to show all the categories live, I think that proved out that that was a mistake. They were not able to create a quicker ceremony. It was actually longer than years when they did do all the categories. So that also proved out was a you know mistake. Uh, another thing that they did, which was ridiculous, and you knew it was going to be bad, was this Twitter audience uh, fan favorite and fan favorite moment. I think we all know where that went. It was ridiculous. So, you know, those are the things that I was rallying against in the first place. Um, and another thing is, is just there's not any suspense. I, I mean, for people like myself who follow the awards calendar, it's all been pretty much decided, and that's partially because other award ceremonies go first, so you kind of know what the industry's leaning towards. And then groupthink takes over, and everybody kind of says, okay, we're going to rally around this thing, and this coda, I'm sure now, probably people have seen it, and they might be like, what? This is the movie that won Best Picture? Um, and you know what? If I really think about it, it's not that different from a lot of other Oscar winners where the heart wins over the mind, so to speak. Uh, it definitely is a film that tugs at your heart sleeves. I do want to check it out again, uh, just because once it's won, and I was the only one in my family that saw it, so it'd be great to get a few other opinions. Was I too harsh on it? I don't think I probably was. I really think it was a uh, substandard film, considering quality for what I think an Academy Award-winning movie should be. Um, but that's, like I said, when movies like Crash win and Argo, I mean, I rarely ever agree with the Academy and their decisions for Best Picture. So uh, Best Director, I think, usually fares out better. 
and this year was no different. I think that Power of the Dog uh, is a film that somehow that was a movie that like people wanted to beat up on. I don't, I don't know why. And uh, they used it almost as a counterbalance, saying that it's no more cliched than uh, Coda in its own way. Or there's just as many tropes. And I think that a lot of people just don't know how to watch a movie anymore, quite honestly, and couldn't recognize. I understand why people aren't going to find it the masterpiece. And, you know, people would much rather go and see something that's just entertaining, like Spider-Man or... Coming soon to a multiplex near you is the Doctor Strange movie. I uh, can't see it opening weekend. I got things going on, but I do plan on seeing it in the future. Um, so anyways, that, that's kind of my Oscar take. It kind of went down just as I thought. And forget about even the slap thing, which was uh, really unfortunate because Academy ceremonies are about making fun of the... Uh, people in the audience. Sometimes they're in on the joke, sometimes they're not. But I think when you go into that stage, you understand that you are kind of uh, open season on you. And yes, uh, Chris Rock made probably a, you know, off the cuff remark about Will Smith's wife, Jada uh, Pinkett Smith. But I don't know if he was thinking, oh, I know that she has a uh, condition that caused her to shave her head because she's uh, otherwise mostly bald. And I think he was just quickly making something as comedians do. Um, and then it turned into what it did. Uh, and I think that it was pretty shameful because if you really, really think about it, sometimes, you know, I caught myself thinking about it days later, the idea that an A-list celebrity would walk up on stage, slap another A-list celebrity across the face, and then go back to his seat and then berate him further uh, with language that they were going to have to edit out. And on a night when you were more than likely, I mean, you were the odds-on favorite to win an award, and you knew you were going to win an award. It was sort of a coronation um, for, by the way, a performance that was not that great. <laughs> in a movie that was really substandard. But uh, that's, again, also not the first time that somebody wins an acting award and it's more about, I don't know, popularity. But I can tell you that uh, Will Smith is probably not going to get a nominee anytime soon. And if that, say, had happened in an earlier award ceremony, he probably wouldn't have won, which is also funny because, again, are you voting for performance? Are you voting for movie? Are you voting for these things for other reasons? And I think that's also what happened with CODA. I think that a lot of people, they like to be on the side of something that wins. And if they were feeling that their choice wasn't necessarily going to win, then they want to be on the side of something that wins. So they went and put their votes their way. Uh, you know, like Kenneth Branagh winning best screenplay for Belfast. If you've seen the movie, it's a little ridiculous, uh, especially when you look at Licorice Pizza. Now that unfortunately had some controversy. So people I think felt they couldn't vote for it, but I've seen it a second time and it, it is really strong, especially in the screenplay category. So Anyway, those are my belated thoughts, and now what I'm going to do with the rest of this episode is really just talk about things that are either in the theaters now or going to be streaming soon because they're going to have left the theaters, and maybe you can rent them on demand. And then there's also a whole bunch of shows. I know this is The Movie Morlock, but I also watch a lot of TV on the streamers, and there's a lot of great stuff to watch. And even in this winter when there was maybe not so many new shows out, uh, my wife and I caught up on some stuff that we'd always heard was great. 
and never watched it. And of course, then I we watched it this winter, and I was really thinking they were tremendous shows, and I want to just throw them out. So if you're looking for suggestions of what you could watch, these are some things that you might want to consider uh, depending on your tastes. So I did see a few films in the theater. Won't talk about them in depth, but uh, A24, uh, always delivering interesting product, and no different. They released this horror movie by a horror film film director, Ty West, and it is called X. And the premise is, in 1979, small group of people from Texas, they are setting out to make a low-budget porno movie. And they've rented this old house that's like an old bed and breakfast, and they feel like no one's going to bother them there. There's this really elderly couple that runs it and you know it's a great setup for that sort of 70s somewhat grindhouse horror flick a little on the texas chainsaw massacre side i mean texas texas chainsaw massacre takes place in texas and uh the setting the way the film looks i think the look of the film is great uh captures an aesthetic that while shot on video not on film it really does uh, evoke that 70s early 80s horror movie experience uh, from the aspect ratio to just sort of uh, the way that they handled the look of the film, the lighting, the texture, the costumes. And uh, I was very impressed with this guy, Ty West. I think he really knew what he was doing. And it was, I've seen a lot of films where they try to take the horror genre, set it into an earlier time, but more so so that they have the freedom of not uh, dealing with cell phones and other things, so it can make things a little bit easier on them. But it always feels like a gimmick. Um, this thing felt genuine. I mean, I grew up watching a lot of horror films in the early 80s, because that's when it came up, and I know, I can smell it when it's real. This really felt real. Uh, another thing, was very subtle, but I think it had some great editing in the film as well. Um, and the performances were great by Mia Goth and just everybody involved in the movie. And, it, you know, again, it takes a really long time, almost like just to the point where you just can't take it anymore before something's going to happen. Um, they really build up the characters. And unlike a lot of horror films where you feel like the characters in the movie are written in such a way that you just can't wait for them to get picked off, I think the writing was great. All the characters were good. And you kind of didn't want to see any of them go. You kind of liked them all. Um, so there's another nod I give to the uh, director. Of course, some people are going to have to die in this movie, and uh, they definitely uh, get knocked off in very 80s gruesome ways that I enjoyed, and the movie sets itself up for, I guess you could always have a sequel, um, but it also sets it up that after the credits are over, there's a teaser. One of the things, because of the quarantine lockdowns, the director spoke with the star, Mia Goth, and he had an idea to do a prequel to the film. And they're like, well, we got everything in the set. Let's just do a prequel movie set like in the 30s. And they did. Um, they also did it in a completely different style than they did this movie. And that's, I don't know when it's going to come out, but I'm looking forward to that. And I, I think he has ideas for a sequel as well. So this, to me, is a great franchise. Um, so X, it's now available to rent, I believe, online and, and soon you'll probably be able to watch it on one of the streaming services. So look out for X if you like horror. I think it was done well, and it's too bad it just didn't do better in the theater, I think, because, uh, you know, a lot of people will discover it and be like, oh, this was a great movie. 
And the next movie that I saw, we're back to A24. They're just delivering the goods. And there's a film that a lot of people are hearing about. And it's called Everything Everywhere All at Once. It is written and directed by what the, they call themselves the Daniels. Daniel Kwan and Daniel Scheinert. And this duo was directed a movie, Swiss Army Man, a few years ago. Um, one of the directors also did another film that's it's on like Showtime right now. And I haven't seen that either. But this film stars Michelle Yeoh. And it also features a lot of other good performances by people. Uh, Stephanie Su, who was in uh, Marvelous Mrs. Maisel. Uh, Ki Hoi Kwan, who was uh, Short Round and Data in the 80s, uh, The Goonies, and uh, Indiana Jones, The Temple of Doom. He has not really acted much at all in the past uh, 30 plus years. He's back and he plays Michelle Yeoh's husband. Uh, he's very good. Also, um, legendary uh, character actor James Hong is there, and also Jamie Lee Curtis. Uh, this movie, I don't really want to give away too much. It is absolutely a, a full original. Um, it's a wild original concept about a, a woman played by Michelle Yeoh, who is really at a crossroads in her life. Uh, she's about 60, and she's just not gelling in her marriage, and... Uh, she's having issues with her daughter, and her whole life is just stagnant, and she really, I think it's like a midlife crisis, but yet at 60, and she's having issues with her taxes, and it kind of just spirals from there, and it becomes this wild fantasy. Uh, there's a lot of homages to other films and other filmmakers in the movie, and it's just, uh, to me, it's just a joy to watch. I loved it. I think it's one of the best films of the year. I really think it needs to be remembered at award season next year. And pretty much every adult that I've talked to who's gone out to see this film thinks the same thing, that it's just great. So I, I really recommend people, um, if they can't get out to the theater to see it, check it out when it streams, everything, everywhere, all at once. You will not be disappointed. Uh, then the last movie that I saw was Robert Eggers, director of The Witch and The Lighthouse. He directs The Northmen. You know, what can you say about it? It is a classic uh, Viking revenge story. Very uh, bloody, uh, very Viking-y. Um, it kind of has like a lot of like the Conan and, you know, son and father. Father gets killed by... Uh, opposition son vows you know escapes vows revenge comes back as an adult for revenge uh it's a little bit the mythology that hamlet was based on and uh kind of follows that in a weird way uh nicole kibben's in it he plays uh the queen who ends up marrying the brother um, who betrays her husband a uh, lot to that character um, it's not a big role, but I actually think Nicole Kidman's very good in the movie. I was surprised at how much I liked her in that. Uh, Anya Taylor-Joy is in that as well, and it features just stunning cinematography. That's like a staple of Robert Eggers' movies. And uh, I saw it on the big screen, which I think it's a great place to see a movie like The Northman. It's, it's what it is. That's, what, that's, that's the movie, and I think when it streams, a lot of dads, I think it's a dad movie that they're going to sit down and they're going to like it. It's very masculine, very gruff uh, movie. Um, you know, probably not your typical big studio action movie. 
There's just some things that are different about it. I think maybe the characters, because they're true to Vikings, are not very likable because it's hard to get on the side of uh, the hero when the hero himself, whatever tribe he's belonging to, does despicable things. So, you know, it's one of those things. So those are the movies that are out. I will be seeing, again, the Doctor Strange coming out. So if anybody sees that in a couple of weeks, you want to talk about it, certainly hit me up. Movie Morlock at uh, Google.com, I think it is, I don't know, or Gmail.com. You can just write me. Um, but anyways, streaming. Tons of stuff to uh, stream. And I want to talk about first some shows that were on HBO and kind of wanted to watch them. Just for one reason or another, didn't catch them, wanted to get to them. And then finally, this winter, perfect timing. Uh, first is The Leftovers. It's uh, three seasons on HBO. I think the first two seasons were like 10 episodes each. And then the last season's like eight or nine. And this is a really interesting, thought-provoking show about what happens when a percentage of the Earth's population just disappears and what kind of uh, void that leaves for the people who are left behind. There's so much that goes on in this show, and I was hoping when I first watched it a couple months ago that I was going to get a chance to talk about it. Um, I kind of forced Teal to watch it, and I don't know if he's finished or not, but there's a lot to say on it. I really enjoyed it, and it's something that's what's so great about HBO. If you have it, you can check in and watch the series anytime you want. I don't think you'll be disappointed. It's not, I wouldn't say, a super mainstream. So the way it ends, there's some ambiguity, which sometimes people like everything spelled out for them. So they drives them mental to not have um, everything just kind of laid out there. And uh, the series was created by Damon Lindelhoff. And he's a guy who was responsible for Lost. And he's done, done movies, too. But his script work for movies, those lesser works, I would say, seems to really shine when he's working on uh, limited series. And then uh, kind of following up on that, another series that was only one season a couple years ago that my wife and I watched the first episode. And then we got busy. And I think maybe the subject matter was just so dark during the political times that were happening that we kind of shelved it, but we watched it uh, this winter after The Leftovers, another Damon Lindelof show, and that is his sort of reimagining of the comic Watchmen. It's somewhat of a sequel set in that same world 30 years later than the events of the original Watchmen comic series, and I really feel like it's as close to a masterpiece of a show as one can possibly get. It is just fantastic. It really does take a couple episodes to get into. Um, and then it's just a very interesting story. The way he tells his story and reveals details is not in a very linear way. And he does that because it helps keep the surprises because you literally can't get ahead of where the series is going to take you. And I like that a lot. Um, and, and really good characters. And I think it is... a. A very interesting parallel to the racial divides that our country was always had, but is experiencing now. Um, so it's a really interesting reflection on the times. And he did that because the original Watchmen was set in the mid-80s, and it was a reflection of 80s-era politics. Um, 
really made a comment on that in a way of telling an alternate history story, and thus the same thing happens here. So it's a very powerful um, show with some really dynamic performances, uh, entertaining, and uh, I, I really just was floored by it. So if you had an interest in seeing The Watchmen, check it out on HBO Max. It's really great. And then a third series that it's only had two seasons so far, so it's still an ongoing show. I don't know when the third season will happen because I got into this just as the second season was wrapping up, is HBO's Euphoria. Um, there's another show where when it came out either 2018 or 2019, right before the pandemic, that summer before, I think, so maybe 2019, I watched the first show, and it just, it didn't grab me. I was kind of like, eh, this is going to be a chore to watch, and it's unfortunate that sometimes when I don't have a lot of time, that first episode is either going to get me or it's not, uh, and it's interesting because this happened with The Leftovers. I had originally watched the first two episodes when it first aired, couldn't get into it, so I abandoned it. That was my mistake. The Watchmen watched the first episode, abandoned it. That was my mistake. And Euphoria watched the first episode and like 10 minutes of the second episode, abandoned it. That was my mistake. Euphoria is not going to be for everybody. It's kind of like a heightened soap opera about teenagers. In one hand, it's extremely unrealistic. Uh, I mean, just the situations and the style and the behavior. It, it may be somewhat true in some schools, uh, probably not in most of America, but yet in a different way by being so heightened and exaggerated, it kind of allows them to examine teenagers and what teenagers are going through in a realistic way. So on the one hand, it's complete fiction fantasy. On the other hand, it's kind of realistic in a hyper way. Um, it was tremendous performances. And I really do feel that the creator, uh, Sam Levinson, who's uh, director Barry Levinson's son, uh, grown up in his late 30s, and he borrows from some of his experiences growing up, probably, you know, in a privileged style and facing his own drug addictions. As a teenager, um, he kind of draws from that well and creates this world. But the characters, even though they're going through all the classic situations, so it's like in some ways it's an updated 90210, if you want to you know, think of it in those terms. But there's just something about the visual style and the kind of rules that it breaks that I find refreshing and new. It's something different. And it's hypnotic. Uh, and I really love that about it and the performances. And then in season two, he and his cinematographer make a very interesting creative decision that I think took a lot of guts and balls, and uh, I'm excited that they did it, and they wanted to shoot the second season on film, but they wanted to shoot on reversal stock, which is something that if you're really into films, you know that movies are shot on negative, and then once the negative's developed, you make a positive print on a reversal uh, film stock, it's basically slide film. So when you put the uh, slide film into develop, you're actually removing emulsion away. And what you're left is a positive on the uh, film that you shot. And that gives you very, very uh, intense colors because you have like no generation loss. So anything you'd make a print off of that, you're making uh, like a positive print off an original. It's just a very nuanced look 
It gives it a very kind of fantasy, dreamlike quality. Uh, very few films have ever been shot on reversal, so much so that with the move to digital, um, Kodak didn't even make 35mm reversal stock anymore. They did start making 16mm again, and Sam Levinson used it in one episode in season one, and then also started using it in a, um, there's these, like these two bridge episodes that they did between the two seasons, and if you're on HBO Max, you kind of got to go into the extras to find that. But uh, he started experimenting with the reversal, but in 16, he and the cinematographer went to Kodak and asked, would they open up a lab to do 35? Would they make enough film that if we shot the whole season, we'd give you enough business? HBO agreed to this, and uh, I mean, the results are like anything, unlike anything that's on TV. It's just magical. It gives everybody a soft feel. feels like a dream. Um, I think it really heightens some of the druggier aspects of the show. You know, it's just a joy to watch. So even if you don't really like the content, just the filmmaking style. Because you're taking cameras uh, with today's technology and some of the robotics and being able to do kind of cool moves that you could never do like years ago, but then using film uh, and lenses that are... Uh, more vintage. So again, Euphoria, I really, really think that the show is a knockout and I understand why today's kids really like it. So uh, again, not for everybody, a lot of sexual content that maybe some people aren't going to be comfortable with, but uh, I really uh, like the show and I can't wait to watch more shows like it, um, you know, another season. Uh, so now some of the new stuff that's out that I've been watching and enjoying. I wouldn't continue watching if I didn't enjoy it. There's the L.A. Lakers show, The Winning Time, about the uh, rise of the L.A. Lakers dynasty, also on HBO Max. And that's gotten a lot of heat for, I think, probably because a lot of the characters are still alive, so they can comment on how they're being perceived in a very fictional take on history. Uh, so that's always tricky. And it may feel more uh, fake to them because the filmmaking approach that they use, they are also uh, very fascinating. They are using 16 millimeter film, some reversal, and also old video, like uh, so professional video in the early 80s would have been shot, not on Betamax, but Beta Cam, it's called. It's the thicker videotape uh, format. Has a very like kind of dated look, I guess. Um, so they use a mixture of all these different film formats from like eight millimeter, sixteen millimeter, thirty-five millimeter, and video, and intercut it throughout. And it gives it this weird quality, as if you're watching like archive footage. And somehow it makes the actors look a little bit more like they belong in 1980 than if you shot it the way a lot of other series would, where it just looks like a lot of people in wigs and costumes. And so from a filmmaking standpoint, I enjoy it. I think it's funny. And I think I know that the show can possibly be 100% realistic. Though I can understand where if I was a person they were portraying, I might have a problem with how they perceive me. Um, whether or not any of this is you know how accurate it is or not, you know, I don't know. And of course, there will be people that will believe every bit of the show, and that's probably problematic because it's uh, not 100% real. Um, so I find it entertaining. 
and perhaps you will too. So that's almost finished watching that. Another HBO show. HBO's got all the shows. Is uh, Tokyo Vice. Michael Mann, he directed the first episode. And the first episode, I think, has the most uh, kind of awesome style to it. And you can really see the difference of like somebody like a Michael Mann, who probably also had a bigger budget to shoot the pilot too, and that probably helps, uh, versus kind of the standard episode directors where doesn't feel like high art. I think HBO series always seem to be like the creme de la creme, like a succession, which is really great. But it's more, you know, it's like a stylized cop show, but better than you'd get on the networks. And even though it's just filled with all the Yakuza mafia fight cliches, it's still fun. I mean, it's another, I would call a dad show. Um, But the, the eight episodes that they're offering for season one, are now complete. I've watched every episode, really enjoyed it. And I think the most important part was when it was over, I was like, ooh, I kind of want to see the next season. And uh, that's what you want. You want to have people wanting another season. So I definitely recommend people check out uh, Tokyo Vice if you like, you know, the cop genre. And if you've seen any like kind of Yakuza films and certainly uh, anybody who has Criterion might see some of these Japanese noir movies they all involve uh, Yakuza, and those plots are all pretty much basic. So uh, this kind of follows on those threads, and I enjoyed it. A uh, new series that the second episode came out yesterday, and I'll be watching it today on HBO Max, is We Own This City. It takes a look at uh, Baltimore corruption in the police force from several years ago, loosely based on true events. And it's directed and created by the, the Wire people. Um, and also the people who did Treme, and also the people who did The Deuce. I've liked all those series. Uh, the Wire is great. So uh, really enjoying already the first episode of uh, We Own the City. And it's only six episodes. I think it's probably only, well, maybe it'll be destined for more series. But uh, I think it's only a one-season thing. And uh, so far, so good. Another show that's back on for its final season is Better Call Saul. They're doing it in two parts, seven episodes now, and then July, they will run the next seven. And uh, they gave us like kind of two episodes to start and then one episode a week. So we've had four episodes of the final season, which is, I guess, four out of uh, 14. And there's going to be a 10 more, so uh, three more this next few weeks, and then have to wait a few months for the Final seven. Uh, I love Better Call Saul. Uh, it's every bit as good as Breaking Bad. In some ways, it's better in weird ways. Um, it's a little tricky when you do a prequel series and you have characters that exist in Better, better uh, Breaking Bad, but they're you know, supposed to be younger. And every year that it takes to make the next season of uh, Better Call Saul, the characters get older. So you kind of have to, I guess, look past that a bit. And, you know, so you see, so forgive it for that. And also, I think sometimes as we are getting in closing episodes, there's the inevitable timeline as it gets closer and closer to the events of Breaking Bad. And that means if you've watched that series first, you will not be as surprised because you'll know which characters are going to make it and which characters, I guess, you have to question whether they'll make it or not. Um, and so that can be a little bit of a letdown. But otherwise, you know, it's just the the style of uh, filmmaking involved and also the writing in Better Call Saul is just really 
um, very layered, and uh, it's great. Enjoy it. And they always find some new things to reveal about characters that you knew or thought you knew. Um, and so they even did that like with an episode last night. There were some new aspects to a character and their situation that uh, didn't quite know before from the Breaking Bad. Um, now, if you've never watched Breaking Bad, an interesting experiment might be to watch Better Call Saul and then Breaking Bad, because then certainly you'll be surprised by everything, because you won't know which characters even appear in Breaking Bad. That's also an experiment you could try if you're looking at stream, but Better Call Saul, fascinating stuff. Um, brilliant performance by uh, Bob Odenkirk, so certainly check that out. And especially if you've seen this other show that's on Netflix, Ozark. Ozark, Jason Bateman is in it, um, Laura Linney. And it is a crime show, not unlike Breaking Bad, about supposed, you know, upper middle class suburban family from Chicago um, with the uh, bookkeeping husband who seems to be pretty boring. But you find out that he's cooking the books for Mexican cartel. Eventually you learn how did that even come to pass. And his ability to use his brains and his quick talking, which is something that's, you know, fun when you have Jason Bateman at the helm there, uh, to get himself out of situations. And then, long story short, they have to move to the Ozarks to kind of get away and hide out and find a new path to launder money for the Mexican drug cartel and all the crazy shenanigans to get into. I don't think it's a great show. A lot of people love it. Um, it does have some great performances in it. And the problem I have with it is you have to look past so many implausibilities. I mean, there are implausibilities that you have to look back uh, past on all shows. But you have to really look past a ton with the Ozark. So, you know, that just finished wrapping up. Uh, my wife and I kind of went through the final episodes this weekend and... I'm just kind of happy it's over. I just didn't really enjoy that experience that much. But if you're somebody that loves those Breaking Bad type shows and you haven't seen Ozark already, then, you know, there's another show you can dive into about the sort of corruption of the American family um, and the perversion of the American dream, which is what I think ultimately the series is about. But but you can't fault the fact that, uh, you know, there's some performances in it that are just fun to watch. And you certainly, the characters are memorable. So, and I can't say I didn't enjoy watching some of Ozark, even though I just found it totally ridiculous. Uh, I'm not done. I've got tons more uh, shows, it seems. A uh, couple of shows that are similar and I have a mixed bag on is uh, the new season of Marvelous Mrs. Maisel. I've watched all those on uh, Amazon. I didn't start watching it from the first time the first season premiered. It took me a couple seasons before I dove into it. Um, it was probably right before the third season started, so I could watch the first two seasons, then I caught up with season three. Uh, this is a show that's definitely run its course. It was really, I don't know, what's the word, schmaltzy this season. Uh, some of the comedy just felt a little broad and obnoxious, and it just didn't work for me. And there was always moments in the series that were like that, but Unfortunately, I'd say most of it was uh, like that this season. And, you know, it's always tough with these period pieces now is uh, writers are sort of struggling with how do they tell these stories that are essentially white people's stories 
in times when it was a white-dominated time in terms of the stories we got in films and television, how do we incorporate racial diversity into them in a way that feels realistic um, and inclusive? And I think that these series really struggle with that, and certainly uh, Mrs. Maisel struggles with that and just hasn't found anything that feels like realistic. It feels very forced. And that's also the case with another show that reminded me a lot of Mrs. Maisel, but unfortunately in the worst ways, is HBO Max has a new show called Julia. It's like about a 40-minute comedy about the life of Julia Child. And the person who plays Julia Child, I think, is very good. It's probably why it's worth watching. Um, And it's fluff. It's light. It's kind of supposed to be more of a comedy but it feels very fake. I mean, you don't even need a fact checker by your side to feel like this stuff didn't happen. Maybe there are little portions of it that are part of the real story, but every episode feels a little episodic and it struggles. It struggles to be relevant. It struggles. Um, I think they, even more so than Marvis, Mrs. Maisel, they want to be inclusive, but they invent characters to kind of satisfy that, that anybody could fact check and realize these characters didn't exist in the real story. And then, you know, I think the problem is most people want to have, if they're watching something that's based on someone's life, they want to feel like it's, you know, realistic. And so they struggle, I think, a lot with it. And also, um, Julia Child's husband is kind of played for goofy laughs. Like the last episode I watched, which is the second to last episode of the season, the finale is next week. He, she has to go to this gala in New York City and he gets a bad semi-cold flu. And so he's kind of bedridden in the in the hotel room and her best friend has to stay. And his behavior is just obnoxious, like kind of like a sitcom um, which was the, the husband played by David Hard Pierce, who was so great as uh, Frasier brother uh, Niles Crane on Frasier. But he's playing the character as if it is a sitcom, and it's just not working. So it really bogs down the series, I think, um, and it becomes very situational. And I just don't think the writing's very strong on Julia. So, you know, it's one of those things where I'm not not watching it. I'm going to watch it. But I don't know if I can recommend it uh, highly. Uh, but it's, you know, it's not the worst thing I've ever watched. So uh, that's a lot of shows out there. Um, let's see. What else have I got in my bag of tricks? Um, there is uh, Under the Banner of Heaven, which is a, like, FX Hulu show. And that's sort of an interesting murder mystery from the mid-80s that involves uh, maybe... Uh, kind of a, you know, some of those more weird uh, sects of uh, Mormonism, more the fundamentalist Mormons, and there may be something involved in this brutal murder that happens, and Andrew Garfield plays a very devout Mormon uh, investigating detective um, who kind of has his world shattered by this. Uh, So there's only been a couple episodes of that, and I'm watching that, and that's kind of interesting. And then I guess the last thing, it's probably not the last thing I've watched, but the last thing I'll mention is on Paramount+. Plus. I I also have Paramount+, Plus. I guess I have a streaming addiction problem. Uh, There's this 
series that they're offering 10 parts called The Offer, and it's about the making of The Godfather. Of course, Paramount uh, produced The Godfather, so I guess they have the rights to do the story. Uh, Last year, I read a book about the making of The Godfather that kind of follows, I think, a lot of the story uh, plot points that they're telling in this offer. I think that the story is actually based on a lot of Al Ruddy, who was the producer of The Godfather's experiences making the film book was very entertaining. I love The Godfather, so I love the details. This I have a lot of problems with. Not only is this something that you can really fact-check uh, time frames, the first episode is probably the worst because it really speeds through the beginning to kind of get things up to speed, and it's very confusing. But it does the things that I don't like uh, with this kind of period pieces where it feels very much like we're going to put people in costumes, we're going to have things on obvious sets, and we're just going to call it the early 70s kind of thing. And it's funny because one of the plots in the Godfather uh, making of is the fact that they wanted to shoot in New York City for their you know, realism, and the uh, producers, not Al Ruddy, but the studio producers, heads wanted to save costs, so they wanted to shoot everything on the Paramount lot or shoot into a, another city that might be cheaper. Uh, eventually, obviously, they won out and they got to shoot in New York. But, ardent imitating life, the scenes in New York in this series are shot on the Paramount back lot. And it looks, they don't look like New York streets. They look like fake streets that are on a back lot set. Um, so I think that's kind of embarrassing. I will say that after a couple episodes, it does kind of take its time a little bit more. And you do have some interesting characters. And the guy who's playing... Coppola actually looks like him, so that kind of helps. And the guy that they got playing Al Pacino does a great young Al Pacino. Um, So some of the casting, I think, is good. But then there's just other things that I scratch myself. It just, it feels a little ridiculous. Another thing that really bothers me is they have these hammy call-outs to the original Godfather, whether it's through lines, and they're trying to make parallels to the story they're telling and the story that makes it to the screen. And it, it's really heavy-handed. So I think that's uh, pretty uh, pretty bad. So it's one of those things where I can't really recommend watching the offer, but the other end, if you love the Godfather, are you not going to watch it? Of course you're going to watch it. I watched it. I'm going to watch it. Uh, there's three parts so far. Each week there'll be another part. For some reason, the thing is 10 parts. I can't imagine how they're going to stretch this thing out to 10 episodes, but uh, they're going to. And that's another thing about these uh, limited streaming series. A lot of them probably could wrap up in like five episodes, maybe six. Often they go on to seven, eight, up to 10 episodes, and they're stretching the material thin, which actually reminds me. (laughs) Give me long enough and I'll come up with three other things. If you're into the whole obnoxious uh, corporate tycoon uh, who gets taken down by their own hubris, there's a few different series that you could watch. Um, I've seen a couple of them. There's one on uh, Uber, and the name escapes me, but it's on Showtime. And uh, it talks about the... uh, I can't remember the guy's name, but uh, the CEO of Uber and what an asshole he is, <laughs> or was. He's not CEO anymore, but uh, just shows you how ruthless and awful they uh, were at uh, disrupting the industry. And then 
one of the ones that I think is really good, and I highly recommend it's on Hulu, is The Dropout. And it's about Theranos' Elizabeth Holmes and her rise and fall. Um, It's played by, Elizabeth Holmes is played by Amanda Seyfried. She's great, fantastic, definitely going to get herself an Emmy nod for this. Um, She makes the show worthwhile. Uh, Her little uncanny funny accent that Elizabeth Holmes did, where sort of a kind of put on personality where she talks like Theranos and it's so funny. My wife and I had a blast each week watching it and kind of laughing along. Uh, I don't know if that was the intention of the series to be intentionally funny, but uh, it really uh, entertained us. And I think that anybody who watches that will be entertained. There's another show on Hulu. They seem to love these series, these limited series based on, you know, real people. They've got a, I don't know, eight episode show about the girl who texted her boyfriend in Massachusetts and encouraged him to kill himself. It's called The Girl from Plainville. The person, uh, it was it uh, Elle Fanning is playing her. She looks just like her. Um, so that makes it pretty good. But it's a show that starts off good. And then you quickly realize it's maybe a two or three episode show that they've stretched out to eight episodes. And so now it's just limping to the finish. I think the last episode may be tonight, unless they've got more that they're going to try to stretch out. So I'll definitely be finishing that up. But I don't know if I would recommend that one as highly. Um, so, I mean, I've thrown out a lot of titles to you. Lots to watch. I mean, if you can't find something to watch, then maybe you don't have any... Uh, streaming channels. That would be a problem, but you got to have some of these, right? And lots to watch there. So get in, watch a series, or go check out some of these movies that are out there. Again, the most uh, highly recommended film would be Everything, Everywhere, All at Once. Really uh, can't find fault in that film. Uh, Definitely going to be one of the top films of my 2022. Can't see other films knocking it down this early in the game. Uh, but anyways, who knows when I will strike again, movie Morlock, James Kent, uh, whenever I feel like it, uh, hopefully, you know, maybe I get a guest, uh, summer's approaching, maybe Bill from Queens will have a moment and he can, uh, join me and we'll have some fun for an episode or two. And you never know when, uh, Teal will strike, um, at some point there. And also, you know, there's, uh, Shannon from what Shannon watched, uh, she's out there, she hears and she wants to get together and, uh, do a taping. I certainly would love to have, uh, Shannon back. She's always up to some interesting watching. All right. Um, and like I said, if you out there want to uh, talk about some stuff, um, hit me up and, uh, moviemorelock at gmail.com and we'll figure it out. All right, everybody. Later. <laughs>